Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Good morning, and we are bringing you a lot of great headlines this morning, particularly what's going on in the United States Supreme Court. There is a case that we'll uh, discuss and debate today, uh, really in the context of the student loan forgiveness that Joe Biden uh, just mandated by fiat, by executive order. Does he have the power to do that? Of course, the left is framing this as an issue of one, uh, whether or not this is uh, student loan forgiveness, but really the issue boils down to the limited power and authority that the executive branch has. And as conservatives, we always need to be very concerned that we are keeping our government in check and that we do not allow any branch of government to go beyond the scope of actual enumerated powers in the U.S. Constitution on the federal level and that we reserve the powers uh, through the Ninth and Tenth Amendment to the state and to the people. So we'll be talking about that a little later this hour with uh, my good friend Amir Benno, who is a lawyer. Uh, But I wanted to start out this morning with another headline. Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday held a press conference to introduce the new board, or basically the new government, that he is installing in Disney's former Reedy Creek Special District, which was an agreement that the Walt Disney Company had had with the state of Florida to self-govern, really in exchange for building a lot of industry and infrastructure and tourism into Central Florida, which previously had just been a swamp. So a lot of people applauded this as a fight against woke, and Governor DeSantis has in the last 10 months since the special privileges of Disney have been revoked, pointed out in virtually all stump speeches and a lot of different places, how he, quote, took on the corporate kingdom and uh, Florida is where woke goes to die. And all of that sounds great. I am all for fighting wokeness. And we've talked about that a lot on this program, that we are all concerned about the woke Marxist crazy, absolutely insane agenda that is now permeating our institutions. And the left is pushing wokeness. And it's ridiculous and so ridiculous, in fact, that an organization called Citizens for Sanity, I love that, it's actually called Citizens for Sanity, dropped yesterday with an absolutely brilliant and brutal ad that highlights the total insanity of wokeness, ESG, and DEI. So listen to this. This is Cut 5. Have you ever boarded a plane and thought to yourself, I hope the pilot is a transgender refugee? Have you ever gone to the emergency room and said, I hope my medical team is incredibly diverse? Have you ever moved to a new city and said, I hope the police department hit its equity goals for the year? If your answer to these questions was no, if you just wanted the most qualified candidates for the job, then you are normal. But we have a lot of very not normal people running America these days. Left-wing politicians believe skin color or gender identity should determine who gets the job. Democrats used to care about the middle class. Now they just care about your race and your gender. 
And as long as Democrats stay in power, it will just keep getting worse. Stop the bigotry. Stop the insanity. Paid for by Citizens for Sanity. I love it. Citizens for Sanity. So you might, like me, be tempted to say, just in the spirit of raising our hands and saying, I am normal, to uh, just applaud any sort of fight against the woke. And in this spirit as well, you might be tempted to just simply outright applaud Governor Ron DeSantis for fighting the corporate wokeness that has so obviously invaded Disney. And yay, a Republican has a spine. We all loved that about Donald Trump. But I would submit to all of you listening who in the last two months, it's now been two months that we have been together uh, this in the morning hour, and I have come to deeply appreciate and respect that um, all of the listeners here are reasonable people. I would submit to you that we need to consider this a little bit more carefully, kind of like the Supreme Court is considering uh, Joe Biden's actions this morning in terms of where is the line of stepping over enumerated powers and limited powers that are provided on the federal and local level. Because this is the deeper principle at play here, limited government powers. So in order to fully appreciate the nature of what's actually going on with Ron DeSantis and Disney, we need to establish a couple of basic points first that I think we all can agree on as conservatives who uphold the Constitution as the supreme law of the land. So we agree that we the people are endowed by God with all of our rights. The government is obligated to preserve and protect our rights for everyone, not just conservatives. And even if the current government office holders disagree with how each of us exercise our rights. Obviously, our rights are not absolute, and we all know that. But we all have the right as individuals and corporations, which is uh, simply an association of individuals, to freely speak without government infringement or retaliation against our speech, particularly political speech and political viewpoints. This goes into our first freedoms, our freedom of speech, freedom of association, free exercise of religion. We've all been talking about how woke is a new religion, right? Well, in the context of Disney, I completely disagreed with the corporate statement from Disney that went against Florida's parental rights and education law. And this was the first flashpoint where uh, DeSantis and the state legislature of California really clashed with Disney. And so we need to go back for the timeline here to uh, to actually see why, in my view, this, this was an unconstitutional action by the Florida legislature and Ron DeSantis. Uh, and people will try to dismiss the constitutional concerns with, you know, and, I, and I've heard this for the last 10 months, well, Jenna, I stand against wokeness and protecting kids. Okay, well, of course, I do too. But what I don't stand for is arbitrary government enforcement of whatever that current government agent deems as speech and political viewpoints that need to be smashed or uh, to be annihilated. So if you are for arbitrary government authority to attack speech that government doesn't like, then congratulations, you're just in favor of tyranny. And you just happen to like the tyrant that is currently in Florida named Ron DeSantis, right? So Hopefully, that should raise a red flag and we should get some, some pushback on that and to say, no, I'm not for 
a tyrant that I agree with. I am for the principles of the Constitution and limited government. So what exactly happened in the state of Florida? Well, first, Florida had a wonderful, fantastic idea that all conservatives championed called the Parental Rights and Education Bill. That uh, that did fight wokeness. It fought CRT uh, within the context of the school system. And Florida passed this um, overwhelmingly. And it was a great thing to make sure to respect parental rights in the state of Florida. And it was something that I championed um, on my podcast. I have continued to champion uh, in the last year since it has been um, legislated. Disney didn't really like the bill. Uh, Disney, as a more woke corporation, uh, decided to issue a statement that disagreed with and opposed the parental rights and education bill. Uh, Disney, in fact, went so far with their CEO uh, to say that they were going to lobby against this bill and that they were going to you know, fight uh, the California legislature and they wanted to basically uh, make sure that the legislature didn't pass all kinds of um, conservative, quote unquote, nonsense like what they claimed and uh, what many, many leftists in uh, Florida and around the country still call this bill as the, the don't say gay bill, which, of course, had nothing to do with parental rights and education. But this is not uh, actually a, a new uh, kind of idea that people in this country, whether it's a corporation or it's an individual, can oppose legislation. We all do that all the time. And that's the whole idea of having a representative legislature is that you have bills that then uh, the rest of society and the rest of, of the citizens can comment on. So Disney, whether you agree with their statement, and I don't, or not, they have a constitutionally protected right to engage their government in Florida. Uh, the Walt Disney Company is located in Florida uh, in terms of at least Disney World and um, this, this special corporation, right? So Disney simply opposed the Parental Rights and Education Bill, and it still passed. So the Florida State Legislature still got uh, everything that it wanted. But that raised the ire of the conservatives in the state of Florida and Governor Ron DeSantis. And even in his new book, which I'm actually hoping uh, to get Governor DeSantis on uh, for an interview on his new book. Um, he was on Life, Liberty, and Levin on uh, Fox on Sunday uh, talking about this book. And, you know, he's done, I mean, virtually everything else that he's done in the state of Florida, I agree with, I applaud. He's made Florida uh, the beacon of liberty, all of that. But even admits in this book, that the flashpoint for contemplating uh, basically how to retaliate against Disney was because they opposed this legislation. So we need to take a step back here and say, well, can a government actor retaliate against an individual or a corporation for exercising constitutionally protected speech or any other constitutionally protected right? And the answer to that question is resoundingly no. And that is why this action is unconstitutional. Now, in any other context, when you look at uh, the Disney special privileges, and I get this question all the time, well, why should the state of Florida grant special privileges to Disney when no other theme park and no other company in the state of Florida has special privileges? Well, about 50 years ago, the state of Florida decided to do that in exchange for Disney coming in and making uh, Central Florida basically what it is now. So the state contemplated that and the status quo has been for the last 50 years 
that Disney has had these special privileges. If the state legislature, totally independently of a retaliatory motive, had said, we're now recontemplating this, and we think that we have given Disney the benefit, and we want to recontemplate these special privileges because um, Universal or other theme parks come to what, whatever the reason or rationale that was a constitutionally appropriate contemplation and rationale for the legislature, which is almost anything else, the legislature would have the purview and the providence to uh, to be able to, and the province rather, to be able to uh, take away the special privileges. But when they're doing it for a retaliatory motive and they're making a change to the status quo, and the status quo here has been that Disney has operated this special district for 50 years, and it is a harm to the corporation for the purpose of retaliation, that is illegal and unconstitutional. So to succeed on a First Amendment retaliation claim, a plaintiff, like Disney in this instance, would have to demonstrate three things. The plaintiff engaged in protected conduct, and here Disney clearly did because it was speech that they were expressing and they were opposing the legislation. And the speech or expression was the type traditionally covered under the First Amendment, which it is. Second, an adverse action was taken against the plaintiff that would deter a person of ordinary firmness from continuing to engage in that speech or conduct. Look, Disney has totally backed off, right? This was an adverse action because they're taking away Disney's self-governing status. They're going to have to pay a lot of taxes now. And so third, there is a cause and effect relationship between the two elements. So the adverse action was motivated, at least in part, you don't have to prove wholly, by the plaintiff's conduct. So First Amendment retaliation claims have to meet those three criteria. And here, we clearly have that because it doesn't even have to be motivated fully by retaliation. So DeSantis and uh, other other members of this, the Florida legislature have said, well, Disney shouldn't have these special privileges and no other theme park does. Well, okay. But they've also said that they are motivated at least in part, and I think beyond even 50%, and the timeline here is because they were mad at Disney for opposing the parental rights and education bill. We have to be very concerned as conservatives that we don't allow this type of First Amendment retaliation for a DeSantis any more than we would want to allow that for Governor Newsom in California against, you know, maybe Chick-fil-A speaking out on an issue, right? Think about it. All right, we're going to be right back with more top trending headlines right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. What could healthcare sharing mean to you? Well, if you're like a lot of people who switch to MediShare, honestly, it's a huge relief. Like for the parents of an eight-year-old girl fighting cancer, it's confidence they have in having a community praying for them and paying their medical bills so they can focus on just being there and loving their daughter, or for a young couple getting ready to welcome their first child into the world, it's being able to be in the moment, getting to enjoy this great gift from God without worrying about medical bills. And it's a relief these days to know you can actually save some money on something. The typical family saves $500 a month by switching to MediShare, and it's a ministry. When you call them, you talk to actual humans who want to help you. That's a relief too. MediShare has been around 30 years. It's affordable, reliable healthcare. 
It's a great time to switch to. Call now. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. This is Pause to Pray. A chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today we pray for Lael Brainard, Director of the National Economic Council. She leads the office that provides information and context to the President for matters of economic policy. Proverbs 15.22 reminds us of the importance of wise counsel. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Lael Bernard as she advises the President. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Stern. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. A Memphis drag queen is threatening violence if Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signs a bill that would ban children from attending drag performances. The legislation would prohibit adult cabaret entertainment that's harmful to minors. Those who violate the law would face fines up to $3,000 and possible prison time. Slade Kyle says the bill is intended to strip away his rights. He urged people at a Memphis nightclub to fight back invoking the Stonewall riots of the 1960s. He pointed out the original pride was a riot, and he said it was important to remind Republican lawmakers of their liberation. He said they would raise their bricks against them. During the 1969 Stonewall riots, protesters threw bricks at officers injuring four. That's how committed the radical activists are to grooming and indoctrinating your children. The San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus performed a song titled, We're Coming for Your Children. I would take them at their word. I'm Todd Starnes. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. And welcome back. We are talking about the top trending headlines and the fact that Ron DeSantis and the state of Florida retaliated against the Walt Disney Company for speaking their mind and openly opposing Florida legislation. And so uh, even though I am all for fighting the woke, I am not for enabling and applauding a petty tyrant in the state of Florida any more than I am enabling and saying totally fine for the petty tyrant in the state of California to retaliate against Christians exercising our faith. Um, For example, shutting uh, churches down in the midst of COVID. And Gavin Newsom and the state of California paid a very pretty penny for uh, all of those unconstitutional anti-First Amendment actions. So I want to bring in my good friend Todd Starnes and uh, get get Todd's reaction uh, to this in terms of a First Amendment retaliation context and the principles of the Constitution here. Because, you know, Todd, you and I would agree that it is incredibly important at 
any instance uh, to fight wokeism, to fight Marxism, to be culture warriors. But I would simply advance that uh, we need to make sure that we do this in the margins of the Constitution. So what say you? Well, I say good morning uh, to the queen of talk radio, Jenna Ellis. Um, yeah, I, I agree uh, there with one caveat, and, and the caveat is I don't believe that any business, whether it be Facebook or Google or Disney, should be given any sort of preferential treatment. So if, in fact, um, the, um, the Disney, for example, Disney Corporation, when they created Disney, they created this reedy, um, uh, this reedy corporation uh, to basically govern, setting up a, a shadow government. I have a problem with that. Um, the government has no business going in and, and protecting these companies like Google, Facebook, and, and, and Disney. Uh, on the other side, though, and, and again, this is one of those weird things, Jenna, where I see both sides of the issue. But for me, the, the ultimate issue, overarching issue, is why are we giving these companies preferential treatment? Give it to all or give it to none? And I think that's a, a totally valid point. And if that were the isolated context that we were contemplating and the Florida legislature had said, why, why have we been doing this for 50 years? Why are we giving special privileges to one company or another? That in and of itself is a perfectly valid and legitimate thing. And I think as conservatives, we should have contemplated that a long time ago and said, why are we giving special privileges uh, to certain corporations? And why is the government picking and choosing the winners and losers? Where I think that the issues overlap here is that when you have at least in part, and I think almost fully motivated in part, um, by retaliation against what Disney expressed in the context of the parental rights and education bill, that's where we get into a very, very sticky First Amendment situation that I want to make sure uh, we don't go down that road of precedent. And here's another one for you, and this is happening in the state of Tennessee, where Tennessee is about to become the first in the nation to not only ban those gender mutilation surgeries, which is uh, incredible, but they've also uh, about they're also the governor is also about to sign legislation that would ban drag show performances where children would be um, in attendance. And what's really interesting is that the left, this is going to be fascinating to watch. Tennessee has a supermajority of Republicans, so we have a lot of legislation that's coming through. And, like Florida. And Jenna, I, I think they're getting very close to legislating morality. And it's interesting because someone said, well, wait a second, what if you've got a public school and you have, you know, the guys dressed like girls or, you know, opposite day or whatever? that would actually be illegal under the legislation. So my question is, you know, is it really, is that something we need to legislate? Is that not the, the decision of mommy and daddy? You know, so again, you can, you know, there are a lot of laws in the books. Take the Second Amendment, for example, enforce the laws that are already on the books. There are a lot of laws on the books already in Tennessee re regarding indecency and indecent behavior and inappropriate behavior. Go ahead and enforce those laws. Why do we need more laws on top of more laws? Yeah, and that's a great point. Well, a lot of us um, are applauding the actions to curb what has become this insane uh, woke leftist culture that we're seeing parents that are openly taking their kids to drag shows. I mean, it's, it's horrifying. 
But at the same time, do we as conservatives respect parental rights? Because other parents, and especially those who aren't Christians, are going to make different decisions than we do. So there is always a clash of rights. Um, And particularly then the question becomes, where does the state have an obligation to step in and protect minor children? Well, there are already laws on the books as far as um, indecency, indecent exposure, um, and, and in the context of Uh, involving minors. And so why do we need more bills like this? And can it uh, be very easily overturned in court for being so overbroad that it would capture conduct that really is not meant to be illegal and shouldn't be? So these are questions, um, Todd, I think that we are going to have to very carefully navigate as conservatives, because if we get a supermajority of Democrats in states like California, for example, do we want them using the very same principles against us and to say that Christians shouldn't be able to bring their children, for example, uh, to a church service or in the context of Christian counseling. We saw that in the state of California that thankfully got knocked down because that's an exercise, uh, a free exercise of faith. So where should we draw the line here? Well, look, I, I think the, the founding fathers had it had it pretty pretty smart, where they really wanted to limit the role of government in in our lives, and they set up these protections for us, which is why our first freedom, the bedrock foundational freedom we have, is in fact freedom of of religion. But I think what's happening now is, um, and, and I'll give you a great example. Last year in Tennessee, again, supermajority of Republicans, they wanted to pass a marriage bill. Okay, well that's noble. I guess, but the problem was somebody forgot to put the age limit in there. So Tennessee inadvertently was going to open up and allow child brides in the state of Tennessee. So I think you have to be smart, do your homework, follow the guidelines of the United States Constitution. Those guidelines are not going to steer you wrong uh, when you're trying to figure all of this out. But I get concerned, Jenna, I don't care, Republican, Democrat, when they start passing more laws to limit freedoms, I think we should all be very careful about that. I think that is a very, very wise word, uh, Todd Starnes, because even if we currently like what the state of Tennessee or the state of Florida is doing, we have to be very concerned about how much we are asking for government intervention, uh, because we need to be more concerned as Christians for impacting the culture and and like I always say in the context of abortion um, you know and which is clearly a a moral issue it is a life issue it is something that should be illegal in all instances but we should be fighting just as hard to make abortion unthinkable and what we should be fighting for more than government intervention is for parents to intervene and to recognize why why would they ever take a child to a drag show because if parents weren't funding any of these and they weren't uh, participating then there wouldn't even be a need for this type of legislation anyway so i do think we really need to be careful about precedent but i wanted to get your take on another story as well todd starns um a christian girls ball team um has refused to compete against a biological male. And I love to see this kind of action uh, taken. And and, and you've written um, extensively about this story. You have a couple of articles up on uh, toddstarns.com. And, you know, so for this this Christian um, team that is biological women 
finally saying, you know, no, we are just going to opt out. Uh, I think this is giving rise to more scrutiny on women's sports. But could this be ultimately then the death of women's sports? Well, it could be, and I, and I think that's the the big concern here is where does where does all of this lead? And of course, we've seen this play out in in collegiate sports um, with the swim team. You know, the, we've all seen the you know what happened with the swimmer from the University of of Pennsylvania, the male who said he was a woman uh, when in fact he was not. Uh, Leah Thomas. Um, we had Riley Gaines on our show a couple of weeks back. Uh, she is the um, she's she's the one who tied with Leah Thomas, but they gave him the medal and not her. She's former University of Kentucky swimmer from Tennessee, by the way, and she's married, and now she's really taking up this cause. And she's warning people that this is the ultimate goal here, is to destroy biological female sports. And that's what we're seeing, this case in Vermont, where you had a basketball team, and they found out they were in the state playoffs and they found out the opposing team had a biological male, and they said, you know what, we can't do this. And they listed the reasons why, and there are pretty valid reasons when you think about it. First of all, from a safety issue, Jenna, uh, a couple of months ago we told the story of a male volleyball player who spiked the ball on a female in her face, and she had to be hospitalized because of her injuries. But the other part is the issue of fairness. And it's it's very clear, and I know society wants to believe there are no differences, physiological differences between men and women, but that is simply not true. And and ultimately, men are going to have the physical advantage uh, on the on the basketball court. That's that's just a reality. It is. And so, do you think that this type of uh, response then for simply opting out for safety reasons, I completely get that. Uh, but to opt out and just say, okay, we will then uh, defer and we'll withdraw is the best solution here. Or uh, in my view, I think that all of the leadership should be much more concerned about enforcing fairness and enforcing rules to say that we don't have biological men compete in women's sports. Some people have advanced, you know, let's do a, um, a kind of a third category and say, here's the, the trans women category, and we'll, ha- we'll let you have your own uh, league and your own group and all of that, which may be, you know, one option. But, um, but for, these, for these girls, if they're just withdrawing, which I do think is fair, um, what, what other measures, I guess, besides suing uh, can they do? Do you agree that that is the best, uh, the best way to fight this currently? No, I think you have to. I think you have to fight it through the courts, and and I think that the school here, Mid Vermont Christian School, you know, I, look, I understand why they did what they did, but I think at that at that stage, when you are jeopardizing scholarships for these young girls, you know, again, they're in the state basketball playoffs, so that means they're pretty pretty good at what they do. You're, but you're risking scholarships and opportunities for these young ladies, and I say fight it. Um, it doesn't matter how you can, you know, how you do that. Get yourself an attorney, uh, get an injunction, but but fight till you can't fight anymore. That's what we have to do here because ultimately the only people being hurt right now are these biological girls. Yeah, and it's just it's so it's so unfortunate when you have this group of uh, of trans women, I mean, which are biological men, saying, well, it's it's not fair to me. Well, what about the fairness of 
of the actual women who are competing in women's sports. And I do hope that the Supreme Court ultimately will take up these types of cases and will enforce what what the 1964 Civil Rights Act genuinely was about, which was protecting the biological difference between the sexes. Of course, they read into it sexual orientation, gender identity, and all the things Congress didn't contemplate. But here we need to make sure that there are protections, particularly in women's sports and in other things, for genuinely actual women. So, um, so, and, and uh, so, Todd Stearns, one, um, one last comment here uh, before I have to uh, let you go on the break. Um, you know, where are we headed as a society when we can't even talk about fairness on the basis of the biological difference between the sexes, but you're actually a bigot now if you aren't uh, willing to, you know, for me as a woman, if I'm not willing to date a trans man, which would be a biological female. I mean, this is just so patently absurd. Well, it it is absurd. And again, go back to Leah Thomas. Mr. Thomas, when he was a male swimmer, was ranked 462nd nationwide. Look at where he was when he decided to swim with the ladies. He ended up breaking multiple multiple Ivy League and NCAA records. So again, this goes back to a single issue, Jenna, and I wrote about this in my book, Culture Jihad, that we live in a society where truth is no longer absolute. Everybody has their own truth. And when the problem with that is, when your truth collides with my truth, whose truth takes precedent? And right now, it's looking like in this particular issue, the transgender community is winning the day. And that's a really, really good point. Um, Todd Starnes, always appreciate you joining. And uh, everyone should be following Todd on all social media and also uh, going to see those top trending headlines uh, because you give really valuable information and perspective with a little bit of snark. And I always love that as well, uh, Todd. So really appreciate you joining today. And I hope that uh, <laughs> thanks. And I hope for everyone uh, listening as well, you know, these types of issues, while of course we take a biblical perspective and we take the, uh, the perspective of uh, the constitutional principles and the perspective of truth, we always have to also go a little bit deeper and say, what is the precedent that we're genuinely advocating for here? So hopefully these last two segments have um, made you at least think a little bit more about whether or not we need things like drag show bills, whether or not uh, we need to applaud fighting wokeness in the state of Florida by, in my view, going outside the Constitution and actually retaliating for a company exercising speech, even if we find that speech abhorrent. We need to stick to our principles and make sure we are effectively fighting within the context of always upholding our U.S. Constitution and the rule of law. We'll be right back with more right here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Hi, this is Pastor Robert Morris. I'm often asked, how do I grow in my relationship with the Lord? How do I hear God? What is God's plan and purpose for me? I want to personally invite you to join me on Sunday mornings right here on AFR for worship and the Word. And we will discover the answer to these questions together. We'll explore the truths found in God's Word that will help you strengthen your faith and develop a more intimate relationship with Him. Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India, rescuing little girls from abuse. 
In her 50-plus years of ministry, she witnessed the transforming power of the Bible. Sorrowful people are comforted. People who were in the dark walk in the light. Is it not wonderful to think that this book is in our hands today? Bert Harper and Alex McFarlane explore the wonders of the Bible weekday afternoons at 3 Central on American Family Radio. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. As Paul was incarcerated, facing imminent execution by Nero, he told Timothy perilous times were coming. Evil men and seducers would wax worse and worse. But he instructed Timothy to continue in what he knew to be true. Then he emphatically stated, preach the word. As darkness mounts and wickedness increases, you and I must continue to cling to God's holy word and yield to the lordship of Holy Spirit in our personal lives. And we must absolutely continue to preach the word. We have our orders. Let's magnify the king. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Preborn celebrates that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Roe has been responsible for the slaughter of over 63 million babies. Now the decision to abort a child will be left in the hands of the states, and sadly, abortions will continue in the most liberal states. Over the past 16 years, Preborn has positioned their clinics in the top abortion cities where 50% of abortions occur. Preborn's work of saving babies' lives continues at an even greater level as they save babies' lives and defend their centers from the radical hate groups who want to shut them down. Preborn's response is dependent on you, the pro-life community. Be a part of rescuing lives and changing hearts for Christ. $28 sponsors one ultrasound and $140 will help to rescue five babies' lives. Dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or go to preborn.com. All gifts are tax deductible. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. We're talking about all kinds of things in the context of law and policy and why we need to always advocate to stay within the margins of the U.S. Constitution, uphold our founding principles, and uh, make sure that we don't fight just to win. Of course, winning is a good thing, but we always want to make sure to protect and preserve this wonderful system of government that our founders gave us so that we can continue to all exercise our constitutionally protected rights. So my good friend Amir Benno, who is a trial and appellate attorney, also a fellow Newsmax contributor, um, is fighting a, a case of a different nature, and he joins the program now. So this is a nonprofit organization that has vowed to fight racial discrimination in the workplace. And of course, the uh, Equal Protection Project is what this is called, is devoted to upholding the 14th Amendment, and Amir Benno is involved as legal counsel. So good morning, Amir. And uh, what's going on with this case? And why is this incredibly uh, important beyond, of course, the obvious that, you know, discrimination and uh, racism in the workplace is never, ever a good thing? Hey, Jenna, thanks for having me on. First of all, I love your show. And I'm so excited that we get a chance to talk this morning. Um, So 
Yeah, this isn't a case. This is a, a, a nonprofit. It's through the Legal Insurrection Foundation, which many listeners might be familiar with our uh, website. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, the organization rolled out criticalrace.org, which is a separate uh, website that documents uh, all sorts of critical race theory uh, throughout uh, education at all levels. And our third project now is something called the Equal Protection Project, and the listeners can go to equalprotect.org. That's the website to learn more. And what it is is to actually fight the uh, equity discrimination. So it's discrimination that's engaged in under this umbrella term of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, which uh, is really a multi-billion dollar industry that is not limited just to the workplace. Uh, it's in uh, education, it's in government, corporate industry, media, the military, and um, the real fundamental movement behind it is uh, – this notion that it is somehow okay to discriminate against white people or that it's not as bad uh, to discriminate against white people as it is against non-white people, and we reject that. Uh, we say that there's no good form of racism, that the 14th Amendment protects uh, equal protection for everybody, and and so therefore we are taking a more active stance, whether it's l litigation uh, or uh, letters or complaints to administrative agencies at all levels of governments or to the attorney general's offices, uh, whether it's the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights or the EEOC, and uh, we're working to combat uh, this equity racism wherever it exists. And this is fantastic. Um, Amir Benno, who is a, a fellow uh, lawyer and also has uh, been a trial and appellate attorney. And um, and thank you for that correction, because I thought this was specifically just one case, but this is a much more broad initiative. Uh, it sounds like to fight uh, this sort of ESG and the DEI uh, wherever it is found. And, and I agree with you. And it's interesting when we typically will say, when anyone on media will say, oh, we need to fight racism, the typical place that we automatically go is assuming that it's discrimination against a, a traditional person of color rather than uh, what some people have labeled uh, reverse discrimination or discrimination um, against white people. But really, we need to not make those types of distinctions either. I mean, racism is racism, period. And to say that we need to be so concerned about diversity over merit um, really is going against what the equal protection um, clause is all about. And, you know, as my, my friend James Lindsay and I <laughs> like to say, um, you know, the, the 14th Amendment has an equal protection clause, not an equitable protection clause. So what really is the difference there in terms of how you are fighting uh, this type of, uh, of DEI where it is found? Right. So that's entirely right. So this is, it all sort of stems from uh, well, we go back to the, the critical race theory, Ibram Kendi's theory about how to be an anti-racist, where he's advocated for uh, current discrimination to remedy past discrimination and future discrimination to, to remedy current discrimination. And we say, no, there's no set of discrimination that is okay. And so to give you a case in point, we uh, are involved in uh, challenging a program in Rhode Island right now the Providence Public School District, which is actually taken over from the, by the state of Rhode Island. So this is really 
it's just a, a state government initiative where they're providing student loan forgiveness to new teacher hires. So there is an incentive to join the, the school district, a public school district. Uh, they're, they're forgiving student loans, but the catch is this. You can't be white. So you have to be um, a non-white uh, new hire, a new teacher. And we're saying there's, there's nothing about that that conforms with the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. It's not okay to say because you are white, you are somehow uh, second class and not entitled to the same benefits that everybody else is. Um, you know, they have a different program through the same uh, school district. It's a mentorship and these, these affinity group meetups uh, where it's, again, limited just to educators and staff of color. And if you are white or you don't fit into those racial categories, you can't attend. And that's pure and simply segregation. So it's taking us back to where we were uh, in the 50s and the 40s. Uh, and like I said before, some people think that, well, it's not as bad because it's not segregation uh, or racism uh, that is uh, injurious to people of color or minority groups, but that's not what the 14th Amendment says. And so we believe that uh, the, the, the the 14th Amendment has to be honored, has to be valued, uh, has to be respected, and it has to be enforced And uh, for it to have any meaning in that any discrimination is bad. Um, and so that's what we're doing. And, and this just makes so much sense because, you know, white also is a color, right? I mean, when we're talking about protecting uh, non-discrimination on the basis of race, that was not contemplated by the U.S. Constitution or in the context of, you know, the 1964 Civil Rights Act that specifies race. That was not contemplated to say only specific races and to exclude uh, Caucasians or white people. I mean, I feel like, Amir, we have had this conversation as a country. We have fought this fight back in uh, the 50s and 60s, as, as you just said, and no one then would have said that protections and non-discrimination on the basis of race only included, as uh, as I believe um Justice uh, Katanji Brown Jackson was arguing that that the that the uh, the legislators and the Congress that enacted the 1964 Civil Rights Act only contemplated for it to be protections against people of color. I mean, that would be the same preposterous uh, sort of contemplation as saying that when they had that term "sex," it meant only to protect biological females. And it's totally fine to discriminate against men in the workplace, which we're also seeing, by the way, we're seeing that women are giving, uh, given some preferential treatment um, more often than men and men are starting to be discriminated against in the workplace. And so it's almost like we are uh, just shifting the conversation to now discriminating against the very people that uh, that initially we tried to have this this type of equilibrium and true equality. And so how are courts currently viewing these types of cases, um, if there are any instances that you're aware of? Um, certainly I'm concerned about what Justice Jackson is saying from the bench, but thankfully she is still in the minority. Yeah, well, I suppose it depends where the uh, the cases are brought. There, Like you say, there are, there are certainly courts uh, unfortunately, that have been infected with uh, this 
this wrong view of the uh, judges who have been infected with this wrong view of what equal protection means. And you touched on something really important, which is there has been a movement. And it all started on campuses, college campuses. But like I mentioned, it's now expanded to the media, uh, to government, across agencies, the military. We're seeing all of this woke indoctrination. And it's viewing people not as individuals, as the Constitution contemplates, us having individual rights, but as part of a collective, whether you are uh, you know, whether it's your gender, whether it's your sexual orientation, whether it's your skin color, your ethnic heritage, your religion, whatever it is, you're siloed into that group. And that group, there's this, this premise that there is systemic discrimination against that group. And that is, uh, we reject that premise. And uh, so, you know, as far as how courts are receiving th- these arguments, they're re- I mean, it's hard not to uh, accept what we're saying, because there's nothing in the text of the Constitution, like you mentioned, that uh, says that, you know, it's all right to uh, discriminate against white people or discriminate against men. That's not really um, violating equal protection or Title Seven or Title Nine or what have you. Uh, no, that's not the case. And the, unfortunately, there hasn't been uh, enough people who have the backbone to speak out. There's a culture of fear. People are very afraid of retaliation and reprisals, whether it's on, on their campus or in their workplace or elsewhere. So they don't speak out, and that emboldens uh, these individuals who are discriminators uh, and to be more aggressive. This thing I told you about in Rhode Island, they, are, they don't try to hide it. They are overt about it. They double down when they are called out about it. And so uh, we are going to push back because nobody else is doing that. And if certainly, hopefully, we'll be able to resolve these short of having to go through litigation. But we are prepared uh, in the right cases to take the cases to court and litigate it you know, to the fullest extent. And I'm really glad that you are part of this initiative, uh, Amir Benno, because as you said, this isn't something that they're just doing um, either in the shadows or almost accidentally, like uh, in some affirmative action instances that, you know, people who are otherwise qualified may have been given preferential treatment. I mean, this is something they are openly doing. They think it's virtuous to say that we need to discriminate now against white people and we need to prefer only non-whites. And to have this type of uh, culture of overt discrimination that is being perpetuated and trying to uh, silence others of speaking out about this. Because if we speak up now in culture for uh, white people, then that automatically means, oh, well, you're a white supremacist and you're labeled as, you know, some kind of bigot and you hate um, all people of color, which is so ridiculous. And we need to change not only the narrative on this, but we need to change uh, and enforce the law on this uh, because the law is already on the books. We just need to change how it's applied. So I'm really grateful that you're part of this program. Um, Amir Benno, thanks so much for joining today. You can follow Amir um, at Amir, A-M-E-E-R-B-E-N-N-O on Twitter. He's also a, a Newsmax contributor. All right, some final thoughts this morning. The hour always goes by so quickly. Uh, speaking of litigation, the Supreme Court is poised to hear 
student loan forgiveness, uh, the student loan forgiveness case today. If you are interested, you can go to the Supreme Court's website at supremecourt.gov and you can actually live stream the oral arguments in this case, uh, which I think is just totally fascinating. That did not used to be the case even just a few years ago. We would have to wait for the audio to be later released and everyone would have to kind of speculate what exactly went on during oral arguments. So it's actually really fun to hear this live. Um, so if you are a you know homeschool family who's listening to this, you know, maybe uh, take a moment and at 10 a.m. Eastern, turn on the Supreme Court's website and listen uh, to this particular case because it's actually two cases that are uh, considering sharp curbs to the power of the executive branch in uh, these two cases that are beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern today potentially diluting the influence of future presidents for years to come. This is actually a good thing. So the conflict between the executive and the judiciary has been growing in recent years, according to the Wall Street Journal, and will be on view when the Supreme Court hears arguments over the Biden administration's roughly $400 billion plan to forgive federal student debt for tens of millions of borrowers. So these two cases before the court give the justice is an opportunity to set strict limits over the president's ability to implement policies without the explicit authorization from Congress. So this move would limit uh, President Biden's uh, We uh, also have people that very much... And um, the moment when he faces the... And, th- and that was Governor DeSantis chiming in. I'm sure he agrees with me. So <laughs> when uh, so the mo- this move would limit President Biden's ambitions at the moment when he faces a few prospects for legislative breakthroughs, according to the Wall Street Journal. So this is a great case. We need to be praying for a good outcome here because this isn't just about federal student loans. Um, this isn't just about pushing this tax burden onto the taxpayers and making everyone else pay for everyone's college education. This is about restraining and limiting the government and the federal executive from going well beyond. And again, the theme of this show this morning has been petty, petty tyrants. Joe Biden is a petty tyrant to think that by the stroke of a pen, he can basically legislate And what did Obama say, you know, with his phone and his pen? Well, this student loan forgiveness uh, case that the Supreme Court is poised to hear, very important. We want to make sure that there is a curb to federal executive authority. Again, stay within the margins of the Constitution. Not that complicated. All right. I will join you tomorrow morning, each and every weekday morning, right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Make it a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.